out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Just a bit. This week is going to be the turn of the American rock band Pentagram because I spoke to their lead man very recently, Bobby Lieblin, to find out more about life, love, poetry and a lot of other stuff as well. It's a classic. Um, so yes, sit back, relax, enjoy it because frankly there's a lot to take in. Um, yes, so look, after a bit of casual chat we got down to that exciting conversation <laughs> about his early formative years which were very young actually so look Bobby it's over to you enjoy it's quite a classic in my in my teenage I was playing in the rock and roll band all through my teens I started playing professionally when I was about 10 and a half 11 years old <laughs> right blimey so when at you 11, a- yeah at 11 years at 11 years old I was playing three nights a week already Eleven, god damn! You yeah. were you were an early developer. So most yeah. people start to get into yeah. music when they're about ten, eleven. Listening to in the UK, we had Top of the Pops in the top twenty or forty. I mean, what were you? So you must have been sort of hitting it quite early on, before that. Yeah, I was. I, I remember. Uh, oh, I remember growing up. I was listening to. I had a transistor radio that my father brought back from Japan from a trip, uh, and I was about five years old. I started listening to doo-wop music in the late 50s, and then uh, the early Mersey Beat scene came on, you know, after Elvis and that kind of thing. Yes. And uh, the Beatles hit, you know, and so uh, everybody in, in the U.S. was getting in a band. All the young guys were getting in bands, you know, back then, and everywhere all around the neighborhood. Everybody wanted to be in a band, yes. you know. It was Beatles Day Part Five and the Stones is is the first, you know, thing that really made us want to form a band back then. You know, so we started our own band called The Shades of Darkness in nineteen sixty five. Sixty five. <laughs> yeah, I was eleven. Yes. Sixty four. Sixty five. There you go. That was that was at the age of 11, I definitely wasn't forming a band called Shades of Darkness. But look, two of the people that I've always <laughs> loved in, in life is uh, Lemmy from Motorhead and David Bowie, who were both on the same, were the same years. When, when they ever mentioned their early musical influences, they both said Little Richard as their kind of first kind of that, that awakening moment. And then obviously all the other people like from, you know, Chuck Berry to sort of uh, Buddy, <clears throat> Buddy Hoddy and Elvis Presley, obviously. So was, you know, did you... Did you have a bit of a Little Richard moment? Did that sort of was that a person who sparked your kind of creative flame? Well, I mean, I love Little Richard. Uh, his flamboyancy was was untouchable back then. I mean, you know, the get up. Uh, it's it's very obvious that Hendrix took a lot of his his look and his stage, uh, you know, antics from from Little Richard. I I believe. Uh, Jimmy was, you know, was really something, and, and Little Richard was the first one that, you know, he's wearing makeup and, and all the, the crazy clothes and stuff like that, you know, back in the late 50s and early 60s, so it's, yeah, a, a lot of it came from that. Um, I think a lot, a lot of people like the Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly stuff, you know, yes. and then the movie Bye Bye Birdie came out in 1960, and uh, Conrad Birdie was a big hero over here for a lot of young people, you know. But there were all all the different early early scene, you know, Fats Domino, stuff 
stuff like that. Yes. Know? So 65, Shades of Doom, you were 11 in a rock band. I mean, did you, was, were, you write, were you writing your own material or were you covering other people's at that stage? We were doing all covers on stage, but I started writing songs uh, right then. Uh, actually, the, the last album that Pentagram did, uh, a curious volume, the first song on it I wrote in 1965. <laughs> Blimey, I'm glad you kept your archive so up to date. That's very impressive. So, so with the, yes, I know, good filing. But did you, I mean, during that period, obviously you had the sort of squeaky clean bands that would sort of come over. Then you had, you know, obviously the Beatles yeah. and Stones and then you know, progressing into people like The Doors and Jefferson Airplane and that psychedelic stuff on the West Coast. You also had the East Coast stuff and you had the Nuggets bands kind of coming up as well. But also, 67, you were almost 13 or 14 by then, there was the Summer of Love. Did that, did that sort of... T- were you excited by the Summer of Love? The Summer of Love was uh, probably the greatest summer I can ever remember. I mean... Uh, it was the innovation in music and just the freedom that the people, you know, young people were starting to express themselves more and coming out uh, in the news and so forth. Because, I mean, let's face it, the Beatles, you know, made rock music become news. It wasn't really featured in newspapers or on TV or anything like that per se before that. But when they, they came out, everything started happening and 67 the summer of love was a really really great time it's just one of the greatest times i can ever remember in my life everybody started growing their hair you know the beads the flowers all of this kind of stuff uh, the lovings you know and everything uh, peace yes. stuff all started you know because i mean when i was playing i was playing in uh I was playing in mostly service clubs for uh, draftees and enlisted men in the service, and they were going to Vietnam. And we were we had gotten in there because we had a manager who ran a place called the One Two Three Club, which was an army post club, and he was able to book us underage in all of these places, you know, where they had drinking and you know all kinds of carousing going on and stuff. And uh, so, you know, we were able to to get a lot of gigs back then. But I remember, you know, it was just a fantastic time. Yeah. Did you find, because I was just going to say, I mean, it was interesting with the Beatles and and a lot of bands who make it. They they often spend a lot of time playing live, you know, and obviously the Beatles manager kind of realised that uh, Brian Epstein realised there was potential there, but they, they still weren't, they were far from the, the real deal. So, you know, he, he sent them over to Hamburg. Yeah, yeah he was played, a genius. He played, you know, three nights a week just to sort of, you know, get their craft. And I noticed quite a lot of people also, especially people who really seem to sort of make it, spend a lot, of, you know, it's almost like an apprenticeship before they sort of, you know, really start to do something yeah. quite interesting. Did you sort of, did you also feel that that, you know, playing live night after night is, is kind of what gave you the sort of the stage presence and the kind of creative impetus to, um, yes. Yeah, it did, because, I, I mean, uh, you know, all the people we were playing for were 18 and up. And, you know, there was drinking and smoking pot, you know, in the parking lots back then. Little little bit, you know, it was under the table back then, of course. But, uh you know, you had to impress these people. And I was a little kid, you know, so, I mean, 
we were playing all the, the heaviest stuff for back then, you know, the, the Mersey Beach stuff that was heavy and the American answer to that, you know, bands like Paul Revere and the Raiders and uh, so forth and so on, uh, Music Machine. And uh, it made you, it just filled you with juice. It, it made you want to, to really, you know, show off. I mean, we were just children, you know, we didn't know a whole lot about the world yet. Yes, and uh, I mean, ten you years. Know, these people were impressed. It was, it was really cool. You I know, because um, ten years later, you know, in the seventies, probably around that time, right. really. I mean, you know, I, that's kind of my awakening in music, I suppose. But you know, and I was quite young, and um, compared to you, quite innocent as well, I think. Um, but <laughs> there were, there were, but we had, you know, we had the Osmonds. Let's face it, and we had the, you know, David Cassidy and the Partridge Family. Whereas you seem to be a little bit more sort of. You what, you weren't quite so squeaky clean, were you? Not at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was the opposite end of the spectrum, if anything. No, I didn't like those those acts, and uh, you know, yes, we were, we we loved the Stones when they came out because they were the Dirty Boys. You know, they were the ones you didn't uh, the mom didn't want her kids to go out with. You know, and so to speak. And I was just watching that the other day on television. I was watching a special about, you know, how it was very contrived that Andrew Lou Goldham, the Stones producer, wanted to have an answer. And him and Brian Epstein worked closely together to have, after the Beatles came out with the, the squeakiness, you know, the clean looking image, they wanted to have an answer for the other side of the spectrum, you know. And so we were we were uh, into all the gritty stuff, you know, yes. standells. And there's just a lot of, you know, because, um, of the sound. Because during that period, we had the sort of like there was the whole Ken Kesey thing and Timothy Leary's with his tune in, turn on, t- drop out. And, you know, and obviously lots of people doing those love-ins, as you said. And, yeah, you know, yeah. The, the kind of the LSD world as well as the sort of um, smoking pot and stuff like that. So were you, I mean, you were obviously very young at that stage. When was the first time you sort of went, oh, blimey, I might have a smoke or, or a tab of acid? I just wondered if, if you were... Or... It was very, very early. I mean, uh, right around when the band started playing because uh, the soldiers were bringing pot back and, uh, you know, and smoking pot. And uh, we started tripping. You know, LSD was still legal until 1966. And we uh, we were doing it when it was still legal. We used to have it sent from California all the way over to the East Coast, and you had to keep it in refrigerators on a sugar cube. So we started taking pure LSD back then. It was very different than what they call LSD now. You used to hallucinate very, very vividly. And we were very, you know, we were young, young kids, but we were going to pop parties and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on, you know. So I started doing that. I mean, by 1971, I had quit tripping (laughs) (laughs) because... I had stopped already, you know, it was like I had my fill of that kind of thing and didn't, you know, get off on it anymore. I didn't enjoy it anymore, you know. There is only so much kind of, you, you need to trip. But did you, um, I mean, were you finding your voice and your stage presence kind of, had that come together quite easily? Because at that age, which again is incredibly young, I mean, it's, um, did you have any inhibition? Uh, did you sort of just have freedom of expression when you hit the stage and got got behind that microphone? The stage uh, was where I felt the most at home at. I mean, uh, 
when I was 18 months old, my parents used to take me to a little delicatessen and they would stand me up on a jukebox, <laughs> up on top of the jukebox, and people would put money in and I would stump around and sing songs. And I already knew how to speak very properly and I would sing the songs. And, you know, people would applaud and they'd put more money in the jukebox. And so by the time I was in the band, it was like very, very natural to me. I was a show off. You know, I was a class clown and that kind of stuff. So it, it was it was always fun when I had an audience. Yes. You know, the audience is what made me get going. Yeah. And but but the interesting thing, I mean, we did have, you know, Mick Jagger, who I mean, obviously now it's a bit of a caricature. But at the time, you know, his stage presence was quite amazing. And Jim Morrison was another who had amazing sort of presence and a, quite an aura about him. So from watching that, I mean, did you were you sort of picking up on those guys as well? And just sort of. Oh, go- definitely. Definitely. I mean, uh, James Brown was, uh, was the biggest influence on Mick Jagger and he also influenced me. And, uh, and so did Jagger himself and, you know, the dancing around the shuffling feet and, the, you know, grinding, you know, undulating and stuff like that was very, very normal to me. Yeah. It was just like, Hey, it's you up there. You got to put on a show. People paid money to look at something, you know, not just to hear music. No, we like a good so showman, don't we? But, um, right. cause, cause at that time, I mean, this is kind of a simplistic way of looking at the 60s, really, but let's let's give it a go. But, you know, you had 67. Things were going terribly well with the... Well, I say terribly well. That sounds very British, doesn't it? But, you know, they're going pretty good in, in theory. Uh, you know, the Summer of Love. You had, you know, in California, you had the... You know, in January, you had the, the gathering of the tribes at Golden Gate in San Francisco. In April, in London, right. you know, we had the 14-hour Technicolor Dream at the Alley Pally, so everyone was really excited. But then the party gets a little bit grubby, doesn't it, and a little bit kind of dark, and then you had... The, the Charles Manson stuff that started to develop, you know, the drugs get a bit harder. The ple- you know, the vibe is a bit unpleasant. And by by Altamont, and then like yes, I mean, um, I mean Woodstock. They were quite lucky because in a way, it was really horrendously organised. And um, they, I think they had two toilets and one food store for sort of two hundred. Exactly. Yes. I remember that. Yes. So, <laughs> I remember so, very well Woodstock. I was I was still in a car. Uh, along the fence lines trying to get in when Hendrix, who was the last act, was playing at Woodstock. Yeah, 3 o'clock in the morning on Monday. All right, God, that was one hell of a Yeah, it was 3 or 5 a.m., something like that. Yeah, it was was just about dawn. Yes. And we had still not gotten in because the whole thing was just a mud bath and people were going, you know, were leaving already trying to go back out and stuff. And it it was a lot of fun, though. I mean, nobody got hurt back then. It was a different type of time because of the war going on. People were very into peace, you know, the peace movement. And so there wasn't fighting. I mean, nobody had guns back then, you know, in their pocket and stuff like they do nowadays. It was a very different, different, you know, culture. Yes, gotta oh. imagine. And um, you know, but then you know, the following year, you know, we had Altamont. There was definitely a vibe with the Hell's Angels. But then you had, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, you know, all dying. I mean, the '60s dream seemed to be quite um, had slightly turned into a bit of a nightmare, really, hadn't it? And and speaking to various people who, in, you know, from London, who were into it, like Barry Miles, who did various bits and pieces in. 
the International Times and Joe Boyd, who was a producer of various people. By the end of the 60s, early 70s, I think most of them were just really tired and felt like they needed to. I did ask Barry, I said, what happened? And he said, we were just tired. We just needed to go to bed and catch up on some sleep. And so I I realised that most people have a zeitgeist, kind of they're in that moment where they know what's happening and they're right on it. And then they they have a year or or they just take their eye off the ball and another group of 18-year-olds pick it up or 20-year-olds and they're kind of, they don't quite understand what the next band is or the next genre of music. So how did you, I mean, you were still incredibly young in the early 70s. So did you sort of feel like, you know, you were still on it or did you feel like shit it's kind of a bit weird it's it's now the 70s and it's you know three well it it was it was weird i I understand what you mean totally it was weird but i knew uh bands like blue cheer uh from the states were playing extremely heavy wild stuff you know i was in 68 and so by then uh my drummer my original drummer jeff o'keefe and i wanted to form a band that was like the Hendrix cream blue cheer type of thing. Uh, and so we started Pentagram by that time. I mean, this will be 50 years now, you know, yes. Pentagram's been together. And so we, we, uh, we just wanted to play really, really loud. Back then bands were not able to play loud unless they could buy their own amps and build up this arsenal and this wall of amps. And it was special if you could play extra loud. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, you know, not everybody had all the walls of amps, but we were we were fortunate enough to, to have someone, you know, uh, a local guy who had faith in us and went out and bought us a bunch of marshals and stuff like that. And so we started playing extra loud and real extra heavy and started doing all original stuff by then. Yeah. Although you couldn't play, there was nowhere to play in the United States if you played original music then. Yes, tricky. But then, did you, as as you were sort of, you know, getting this together, you know, you obviously, and this is the age when I started to sort of become a bit more, you know, on it with the music scene. You know, we had Alice Cooper appearing with, you know, Schools Out, which obviously, when you're young, is an amazing anthem. And then we had sort of people like, you know, there was Black Sabbath's debut album, which was about seventy two, seventy three, and. And that kind of rock world started to appear in the, you know, definitely in the UK and then Led Zeppelin. Did you suddenly, and you were talking about noise. I remember Grateful Dead used to have a massive wall of noise, didn't they, as well, with some of their live shows. Did you start, did you start to feel like, OK, this is part of our party, you know, seeing Alice Cooper and Black Sabbath and people like that? Yes, very, very much so. I mean, the Summer of Love was kind of the introduction to that because 67 is really when Hendrix started and Blue Cheer and Cream at the end of 67, you know, around 67, 68. So by that time, we were really into doing that kind of thing. It was my generation, definitely. You know, we were all coming of age, so to speak, and, uh, you know, getting to be young adults, let's put it that way, or so we thought. And uh, we wanted to play extra loud music and, and bands like uh, Sabbath and uh, and Hendrix and so forth were starting to tour, you know, on massive at large levels, you know. So we started seeing, I mean, uh, the first time I saw Alice Cooper, for instance, uh, it was on the reflecting pool of the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., and it was free. And uh, he had no albums out, and everybody was astonished, though, at the glam look, 
you know, it was it was really something to see back then. It was, uh, you know, and Hendricks with his antics and so forth, and then Sabbath with the volume and so forth. And it was it was an exciting time. Yeah. Music was that that type of music was still very very new, and the ground was unexplored. And, you know, we started to branch out and say, hey, we can kind of do it any way we want to, because this is our music. Like you said, you know, yeah. it was our time. And obviously we'd had the, you know, the Stooges and then Iggy Pop sort of appeared and the MC5. Mm-hmm. So that all made it. And then sort of as the 70s progressed, there was the sort of that kind of the rise of the punk scene with, you know, CBGBs and Max's Kansas City. So were you feeling like, OK, this is good. But then you were also... There was, even in the early days, there was a few sort of issues, weren't there, with the band? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had uh, we had problems here and there. I mean, we couldn't play anywhere because, like I said, if you didn't play covers, you couldn't play in clubs. And we didn't have any uh, formidable booking agency or management, so there was no way to get on to big things. And uh, we were still very young, so we had no no real monetary support from playing music at all. And there was no way to travel. And the Washington, D.C., Virginia, Maryland area, the tri-state area, as they call it now, uh, had a very, very dead, dismal scene for rock music. If you were in a rock band and you played originals, you could totally forget it. So Pentagram could not get on any bills or play any gigs anywhere. And uh, we just religiously practiced three times a week in a Peace Corps mailing warehouse, uh, which was uh, our drummers and father happened to run this place. So we were able to have all the marshals and play as loud as we want and lock our equipment up safely. So we just practiced three times a week for three hours a night on and on and on, like 71, 2, and 3. And uh, we virtually played no place whatsoever. Yes. Nowhere to do it. They just wouldn't let you in the clubs. I mean, it's kind of, it must be very demoralizing when you can't, because, I mean, the one thing in life is about sort of feeling like you're making some sort of progress. And, I mean, to be honest, I was kind of much more of an 80s kind of indie kid. And, in you know, in those days, or the, yes, those days, I mean, there was kind of various gatekeepers, you know, like we had in this country, you know, certain DJs and there was the music papers that would give people that kind of kind of uh, kind of an access or at least a little bit of a leg up to the next level yeah, exposure right yes right. And, and then if you there was walk, no uh, way to expose yourself we didn't have the hookup as they yes, call it you know the, the gatekeeper that helps you sort of go to the next level right you get the single or right. the album so that that must have been incredibly frustrating during the 70s because you you weren't really going beyond you yes you're yes that wasn't progressing we weren't, we weren't going anywhere yeah <laughs> you know we weren't going anywhere we we're spinning our wheels and uh you know we did uh we did a, a few demo singles in the early 70s and labels were interested but didn't want to put up big money or anything like that and we didn't have money to promote ourselves or you know our own of course back then you couldn't do it yourself There was no independent music scene like there is now. Like, hell, everybody gets on, uh, you know, we're going to make a a new record. And you can check it out on the link to Facebook. 
I mean, there was no social media, so no. there was no way to spread your name. This is true. Because you know? I watched, watched a documentary recently on Twisted Sister, bizarrely, and um, I don't know, it wasn't that bizarre, but it was, it was the fact that um, they played gigs all the time. They were getting fantastic audiences. They yeah. were brilliant. No record company wanted right. to touch them, which is kind of bonkers because actually... No, they didn't. I, I saw the same documentary, I'm sure. Yes, you and, and yes, it was like... Was, it was you know, very interesting. It was amazing because you just thought, well, even if you didn't like them on anything about them, you could see money signs in front of your eyes. It didn't take a genius to think, well, I would just, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a businessman, woman, you just think, mm-hmm. oh, sod it, let's sign them. You know, I don't have to listen to the records. I don't even have to meet them. I'll just, you know, count the royalty checks. But, you know, they couldn't get signed, whereas you couldn't play live or get, you know, a record deal. So how did you yourself and the members of the band keep enthusiastic until you did your first album? It was, well, now you're getting back into the, all the way down into the late 70s. And in the mid-70s, the disco scene hit in in America and I suppose over there too. Uh it was uh it was much more open the scene in general in music was more open in in the UK than it was over here. But disco hit and that further killed the hard rock scene in the mid seventies here. You started having more folk acts and uh just different varieties of things, of progressive rock bands and so forth. And it killed off the scene here. So we, we still really couldn't get anything happening. And we just had that. I had personally a propensity to move on and keep carrying the flag and saying, I know that what I'm doing is good. I know that, you know, people will like it. Uh, I have to keep doing it. It's like I mentioned very earlier, uh, much earlier, it, it was an addiction. It was yes. something I can't give up on this because I had written hundreds and hundreds of songs already. And, you know, uh, the original pentagram gave up on the whole thing. Uh, we stopped in 76 and then, uh, there was a couple of, you know, years of somewhat stagnation. And then around 78, uh, we finally, uh, well, I put the band back together with uh, the drummer Joe Hasselvander and a couple of other guys, and we started to get local gigs. They started letting us, you know, fit in here and there. We opened for Judas Priest on the Hellbent for Leather tour uh, at this club. It, it, was, it wasn't a big club. It held like 1,300 people, which is not big compared to nowadays standards, but... Uh, we were able to kind of generate a little bit of motion and I just kept wanting to do it myself and Joe, the drummer were very, very much, we were still into the blue cheer thing and to playing heavy, loud, original stuff. And we wanted to get the sound out. So it was addicting. It was just something I knew, I knew from a young age that this is what I was meant to do. Yes. This is my calling in life. Because I guess, I mean, I'm guessing that, well, not guessing, but it's kind of that thing that you didn't really fit in with, you were more rock than punk, weren't you? You weren't going to be part of that kind of world of the Ramones. Right. We weren't weren't into the punk movement. Not at all. I mean, not at that time, you know. 
which is kind so of it was yeah, hard so with you, being you a hard rock band. Yeah, but coming to the eighties, as as this is when you get your first album. I mean, there, there was kind of definitely a resurgence in sort of metal and heavy heavy rock because you know we suddenly had the LA scene. So did it feel like you know that that sort of period? In this country, we had dear old Thatcher, and you had Reagan, and then sort of the heavy rock and MTV. Did it? Did you suddenly have that moment where you thought, "Okay, this is this is us now. This is our time to start to sort of get the album together." Yeah, we. Uh, well, I met uh, Joe and I met up with a couple of other musicians uh, from Tennessee, and they moved up here to Virginia area, and we changed the name for a short period of time to death row, which we call the death row pentagram era. And in the early eighties, uh, I met with guitar player, Victor Griffin for the first time. And he and I had a musical marriage of, uh, he adored my material. I adored his material and we uh, started doing the makeup and uh, the leather and the studs kind of thing was, you know, was going on. And the visuals, I mean, the hair bands were, were lightweight to us, but they did have the look. The hair bands from L.A., you know, uh, uh, the bands like, uh, let's see, Rat and uh, Quiet Riot and these kind of bands that, that were like that. You yes. know, they, they kind of had that image that we liked but they didn't play as heavy as we wanted to. We still wanted to do the Sabbath cheer, you know, kind of heavy thing. And we loved each other's material, Victor and I. So we said, let's, uh, let's just keep doing all originals and develop a stage look, you know, sort of. And we started getting gigs all over the place because we were like the loudest, wildest, heaviest band on the East coast. If we had gone, out to the LA scene, I think we would have really struck it big and, and taken over the music scene out there, but we weren't able to. So, you know, we, we just kept playing here and we finally recorded the first album, which was originally called uh, Death Row All Your Sins on a cassette tape and just released a local, like 250 copies and they sold out real quickly and we still didn't get a contract until 85 though it was further down the line but we yes. kept playing we were playing quite a lot you know and then i mean obviously that that sort of it gives you a bit of a sort of spurt in a way um of um bringing out a second album quite quickly the day of reckoning in 87 by then sort of rock had become quite an established thing in the 80s as well but it was, yeah. But it was you an institution were, by then. Yeah. It was definitely an institution. But how were you coping? Because there was always lots of kind of lineup changes and sort of dealing with that kind of dealing with the emotional baggage. Well, not emotional baggage, but you know the kind of dealing with people coming and going and, and human relationships and dynamics. And obviously, you you had a lot of these with with the band, didn't you? Yeah, there were a lot of changes, but uh, it, Victor and I stayed together. I mean, from uh, well, the death row pentagram year was 81 through 85. And then we kept going uh, again uh, with a different drummer, the drummer on Day of Reckoning, Stuart Rose, uh, through 87. And we, uh, we, we had a lot of lineup changes, but 
they were really short-lived things. It was just a member here, a member there. Uh, it looks like it looks like a lot more than it is. Mm. Um, people people thought that I was hard to work with back then, and I probably was. You know, I was headstrong on what I wanted to do, and of course, uh, there's a darker side. You know, people try to write in all the drug-related crap and so forth and so on, but this really was not the issue. The issue was no label support, no push, no management, no booking agent. We had no kind of handling whatsoever. We were just on our own, and we still had to keep playing around the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, We kept playing and playing, and we'd fall apart here and there and change members here and there, and... uh, then around 87, the band uh, kind of called it quits for, for a bit of time. My drummer, uh, Joe Hasselvander, joined uh, Raven and from England, and they went on you know, to do massive amounts of touring and so forth in the late 70s, and uh, I mean the late 80s, and around 90... 1991, I think it was, I got contacted from Peaceville Records in England. And we had two albums out in America. Uh, the first one, the self-titled Pentagram and Day of Reckoning. But Peaceville wanted to reissue these albums. And they were a very small label at the time. There were only three or four people running a label. And they said, you know, we can't put a lot of, a lot of money into the band but we can re-release the first two albums and let you do another album. So the band got back together uh, at the late, in the late 80s, well, around 91, it actually was. Uh, and we did the album Be Forewarned in 93, and uh, it was pushed you know, all around by Peaceville. And we, we finally felt like we had something underneath us, you know, we have at least I have a label. Yes, but we didn't have you know self promotion. So yeah, because I mean, sort of obviously, I'm not from, I'm from the UK, not the USA. I mean, most people, not most people, but a lot of people, you get that impression, kind of are happy to sort of move around and relocate, just sort of because obviously it's a big country and there's a huge amount of space between each place. So each kind of area sort of is like a mini country in itself. Did you ever sort of get tempted to, to leave your hometown area and think, oh, sod it, this isn't happening, I'm going to relocate over, over somewhere else? Or was it not that easy? No, it wasn't that easy. Uh, you know, like I say, without, you know, big record sales and big push, uh, with advance money back then, you know, people, uh, labels used to give you big advances if you were a big band like that hair bands a lot of them got huge advances from record labels and we were still not signed uh to a to a large label that would back us and i stayed here myself when victor uh went out to the west coast and he went out there and did a lot of playing with uh wino scott weinrich from uh saint vitus and obsessed and they were playing out on the west coast up until the time Peaceville contacted me and uh, they wanted to give us this contract. So Victor moved back. Joe said, I'm in. Marty said, I'm in. 
and we signed with Peaceville, and they re-released the first two albums, you know, and it kind of went on from there. I mean, we, we played an awful lot in 92, 93, 94, up through 97, actually. Uh, we had various member changes. Uh, Joe and Marty finally left around 95, and that's when uh, the band started picking up momentum and we were getting a lot of gigs, but I never really thought about relocating. I was it was just too hard to do. Yes, you know, at the time, I would imagine it is, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because the one thing that sort of often, a lot of bands I've interviewed, the, the one thing that sort of often knocks them out, mostly they have a five-year narrative. Okay, you know, they get together, they have that sort of eighteen months of sort of rehearsing and playing, getting something that's kind of quite interesting, and then you know the first single gets picked up by a DJ, and then they they sort of move into the first album and a bit of a tour. And, you know, the first album, you know, if things are going to happen, is good. It's often the sort of second, third albums. And in the UK, anybody who ever tours America mostly come back feeling shattered and like, no, I'm going to completely give it up. But you, you know, to keep persevering for such a long period of time in, in music, I mean, when you weren't in a band, what were you, what were you sort of doing? Were you just kind of always plotting? Oh, you know? I just... Just... just figuring things out and restructuring. That's where a lot of these member change things came along of just trying to do it with different people, but nevertheless wanting to keep the pentagram moniker and keep pushing and keep striving on to do it. I, I always had this. Uh, I had a one track mind when it came to that. I wanted pentagram to make it. I knew that the, the music was worthy and it was just a matter of getting some kind of, uh, publicity you know from labels uh releasing the stuff massively all over europe and things like that and uh i just i just never wanted to give up yes because i did i did an interview with fast eddie who was in motorhead you know he was um in the the classic lineup you know when there was lemmy fast eddie and uh Phil Taylor. And I mean, the one thing I sort of had sort of realized slightly is that during that period, the three members were sort of, there was a kind of, I could see there was a sort of issue in the fact that, you know, it was like they all had a third of the band, you know, they always felt like they were part of Motorhead. And then over the years, you know, they, they left and two other members joined Lemmy. But it was kind of always, it became kind of Lemmy's band up to then, you know, it was like Eddie's and Phil's. Yeah, and I that. think that's why Pentagram. I, I sort of think that's why Pentagram became attached to being me because I kept it going and I kept it under that name consistently and I wanted to keep doing it and not give up, you know. So I was I was Pentagram. Yeah. <laughs> to, to a lot of people. But is that is that because a few like that. a few people I've spoke to have struggled with that but for various reasons of wanting to be in a band and make it quite diplomatic oh not diplomatic democratic and then thinking you know and like trying to have equal say having vote, voting rights you know trying to put each other on sort of the writing or well, the person who does all the work yeah see, putting... it's, it's hard to do it like that it's hard to do it like that because you know you can only have one person who has a final say in things there has to be somewhere where the chain of command ends and it's like we're going to do it this way and this is how it's got to be so i kind of assumed that role i was very headstrong about it you know yes. like in the very early 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 70s i didn't let other people's writing really prevail at all you know i just i had written hundreds and hundreds of songs and i wanted to get them out there so it became my band 
Yes. You know. Well, that's actually, I think, for the people I've spoke to who had that experience where they would put other people on the writing credits and then all that kind of business, it often ends kind of really badly for them, kind of almost 100%, because... For some reason, you know, the bass player who hasn't ever written anything, who spends all the time going to the beach and partying and just hanging out and occasionally turn up, sort of suddenly gets quite arsy, even though they do very little of the work compared to the person who's writing the lyrics, you know, doing all the management right. stuff, kind of having sleepless nights, wondering how it's all going to exist. And then sort of they become yeah. quite resentful because they're thinking, fuck it, you know, that's, you know... Um, if I could go to the beach for the day or go and sort of look for a nice flat to live with it, with my girlfriend, that would be great. But the, yeah, that, yeah, but you're under the gun because but, it's your thing. Yes, you know? but if you were waiting for that person to write the song and do all the business, you'd probably go, I might as well get another job because this band is kind of over. So that, that kind of resentment often sort of builds up a lot. But people, kind of especially when you're younger, have an idealistic kind of idea that, you know, we should all be slightly equal. And, um, and it's a lovely right, idea. Sure. But did you ever sort of feel that there were times when you just like, actually, fuck it, it's me. I'm the person who's who they've come to see, really. I'm the one who's writing the material. I'm performing. I'm the one who's the slightly tortured artist at times. So I'm going to have the final say. I Yes, I did. I have to admit that. I mean, it, it became my thing because... People started uh, writing articles, and I started doing outlandish things on stage to draw attention. And I was generally the, you know, since I was a front man, also I was interviewed the most of the time, you know, uh, about information about the band. And I had carried the flag all the way, you know, already talking from from '71 till the late '90s. You know, I had already held the moniker for 20 years. And I felt like this is going to, you know, it's me. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, it's, uh, of course, there's an ego feed involved in it. But I, I mean, I'm not trying to be narcissistic. I wanted, I, I realize to this day that without the band, I'm not there. You know, so it becomes very, uh, you have to use a strange kind of diplomacy. You have to remember that all the parts are what make the machine run, right? Yes. So even though I'm up front and, you know, I'm I'm outspoken and I'm the one attached to the name, you have to have unity. I mean, a band means bound. You know, that's what the definition of a band is, is bound. So you have to have all the moving parts, you know? Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, like anything, you know, and I've been in various groups, not pop groups, but sort of other organising groups and sort of um, bits and pieces, it gets quite kind of weird at times. You know, there's like people kind of, there's little sure. groups, there's little <laughs> fractions, you know, you suddenly don't know who to trust anymore. Things kind of get a bit, yeah. me- can get a bit messy, can't they, you know? And, and yes, you they know, get quite messy. Yeah. And, you, and your brain's <laughs> having to sort of go to play, not nasty places, but you just realise... You know, you try, you try, you think you're being good, or you think you're doing the right thing, and then someone stabs you right in the back. I mean, did you sort of, did you know, has it been kind of a quite a learning curve being in, in sort of 
the career that you've chosen in the sense of like, fucking hell, this was, this was quite hard at times. I just wanted to be on stage and play music and actually there's a whole, it feels like one of those political dramas, like, you know, the, I don't know, the Roman Empire was suddenly yeah. walking into the room and thinking some, you're the mafia, you know, where you get invited down to see somebody and, you know, you, you go, oh, shit, the gun's right behind your head just as they pull the trigger. I just wondered if you'd also... Exactly. <laughs> yes. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, you're, you're on, like I said, you're on the X, you're under the gun. And you, you have that feeling in your subconscious at all times. It's like, wow, if, uh, if the band makes it, you know, we will get all the glory. But if the band fails, I will get all of the ridicule. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it was hard like that, you know. Yes, I know. You're, you're on the shopping block all the time. Yes, you're in the lose, almost lose-lose, aren't you? Well, kind of, yeah. Yes, you are, yes. <laughs> can be. Well, the, certainly well, can be. Well, everyone just plays the plays the role of being it. Because then, you know, because the other thing that I noticed that a few bands had a, a problem is like being in a... In, I mean, timing is everything. I realise a few people have said, you know, we were either too early. You know, there was a guy called Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness who said they were two years too early for punk, but everybody who came to the to see the gigs formed punk bands, you know, like the, you know, the Clash, the Damned, you know, the Pistols, and they did well, whereas he was like, by the time the, you know, punk movement happened, he felt like he was too old. He was only 25 at the time. But, you know, you get the gist. And then, <laughs> and then a lot of other people you know, are in that scene, they think, this is great, and then the scene changes, you know, like in the 80s, which is kind of a decade I'm you know, very keen on, I suppose, you know, ecstasy comes along, you know, and suddenly everyone's looking for that sound of the dance, the kind of slightly more dancing, there were bands like the Happy Mondays, Stone Roses, um, Primal Scream, who who kind of got that ecstasy, ravey culture, and then a lot of bands before that thought, fuck it, we're not, we're not part of this gang and, and no one really wants to see us anymore. No one's definitely not going to buy the next album and that's kind of when it finishes. So I just, you've had to sort of, you've had 50 years, haven't you? 50 years in music. How yeah, you... I mean, I'm a traditionalist, see. I'm a stick to your guns kind of thing. I don't, I feel like, okay, well, this scene, passed. I've seen so many music cultural scenes come in and go through the years, I'm a traditionalist. I started when I started with a particular cause in mind of music, that is, and I stuck to the guns. It was, you know, come and go, I'm still here. And that's something that I am proud of, that, hey, I still do what I did then. And, you know, maybe it becomes refined uh, you go through all the falling outs and the falling apart and restructures and so forth. But I'm just one who wants to just stay with that kind of thing when it comes to pentagram. Yes. And, that, and the other thing, I mean, which happens if you... Actually, it's interesting because Lemmy in Motorhead... I know, I was going about Lemmy. I love my Lemmy. But he'd often start, uh, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're Motorhead and we play rock and roll. And he did. That's what they did. They didn't, they didn't sort of deviate, did they? They kept to rock and roll. And that's all he did until he literally... I think he played a gig in Germany in December and by the end of the month he passed away, which is pretty amazing because he looked so kind of quite ill. And they'd already were organizing another tour for him in the new year, which I thought was amazing when you saw saw kind of how kind of shriveled he looked at that, you know, last few dates that um, right. obviously cancer had eaten his body. But you've obviously, you're, you're one of the great rock survivors, let's face it, let's not beat around the bush. But, you know, other people have sort of like <laughs> died from, you know, cancer, crap, road crap, you know, car crashes. I mean, 
how do you deal with that kind of on, a, on an emotional level? Because obviously that's quite a f- weird feeling when you get to that age. It is weird when you, when you get, get to my age and you see all the things that have come and gone. It's a miracle that I'm still here. I mean, having made it through all the drug stints in and out and all the breakups and, and watching all of the other, uh, as you would call rock stars, die off. You know, I, I'm no kid right now. <laughs> you know, I'll be 67 years old in a few months. And uh, when I started the band, hell, you know, 16 years old. So you just you just have to have to have that drive. You can't, you know, it, it's a weird feeling. Yes, I'm. I keep thinking daily in my life back to when I very first started and saying, "Wow." Can you imagine when Paul McCartney finally dies yes. <laughs> or Keith Richards finally dies? I mean, I'm going to be in shock completely. That's going to floor me because these were my earliest, you know, major idols and so forth. Yeah. But, you know, I'm still here and it's a miracle and, and I'm thankful, you know, thank God every day that I, you know, haven't succumbed to all of these things. Now with the coronavirus, my God. <laughs> this is something that, that the world has never in, in any of the last few generations has never known anything of, yes. you know, it's a new thing. I mean, I don't go out of the house right now. I could, you know, it's still extremely bad in the States and, uh, yes, I'm, I'm just afraid to go anywhere. I know. You know? It's a, it's not a good and the music, it? the music industry has been really shot in the back. I mean, let's face it, you know, you can't concerts, live concerts and so forth. I mean, in the real sense where people are gathered together, sweaty, thousands of people standing next to each other, you know, and, and hailing the, the groups they like and enjoying them. You can't do any of that anymore. And it's it's a very scary period now. You know, it's, yes. uh, I think that the music, the live music industry is going to be the very last thing on the planet practically that comes back in a, in a purest form. You know, we don't know when it's going to be able to return. We had to cancel. uh, Yeah. We had to cancel our first uh, South American tour, our first trip to Japan. uh, The usual that we do quite, quite many times our European and Scandinavian tours are all canceled. Everything is all things are off. All bets are off the table now for the rest of the year. I know. Well, yes, I know. It's quite horrendous. I mean, because I could, you know, because I know that um, a lot of the English bands, you know, like touring is that kind of everything because that's, you know, record sales have never been that, you know, financially amazing, but they realize that, you know, touring... Right, it's financially, but it keeps you alive, you know, and, it keeps you eating. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And 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 I know most people, you know, will, even, you know, when you're hitting 70, is, is like, you know, if you're going to keep the band together, you still need to go to Europe and play, you know, like 29 dates in 30 days just to keep it. And the German market, you know, which, you know, everyone always says is so important, is is the kind of market it that is. the fans are so loyal, they'll sort of come, they'll buy six CDs each, they'll do the merchandising, and they'll love you. You are not lying. You know, so that's, the, that's really, our European fan base is our biggest in the world. The European Scandinavian base is just humongous. I mean, we, we play for huge festivals, you know, 50,000 and up over there. And it's, 
it's hard to to realize hey this is not going to come back for quite a while yes. you know i mean i'm watching a baseball game for instance a preseason baseball game right now on television and the stands are empty you know opening day of baseball which is a form of enter- mass entertainment and it starts again this coming thursday but the stands are empty there's nobody there and so it's it's hard because our biggest fan base is over in Europe. Uh, Viber Agency, uh, Klaus Kutzel is our uh, European representative, and he had us, you know, scheduled for all kinds of things in Germany and Norway. And we have huge fan base over there. You really get treated like uh, you finally get to kind of swagger a little bit and you feel, you feel like, wow, I made it to the big leagues. I'm a big timer now. You know, yes. The major leagues. And it's, it's all off the table, man. It is It is quite, um, yeah, I mean, you know, little did we realise on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, thinking, I wonder what this year and decade will feel like this. Um, we wouldn't have predicted yeah. this. Let's face it, it would have, it would have, play, would have been completely off the radar. I mean, because it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting because, yeah, you're the la- you know even though you you've sort of you've got the band and that's very much you know your band even yeah but recently there was the kind of the band played without you at one stage didn't they did that ha- what I mean what's the details because I'm not quite sure what that was did it was it the case you weren't about or was it the case that they just kind of did some Machiavellian moment on you no, no, no. Uh, no, it's a very complicated situation. Uh, I was locked up for a time and uh, in jail, and some heavy stuff went down. It was very misconstrued by the media, and uh, the band had obligations all over Europe to still play. So they had to continue on because these were contractual obligations. And so the band had to do touring you know for some period of time for six months or so without me right but uh, my intention was never to stop not you know my own volition and uh, that's why as soon as I came back out and you know my health was good and so forth and so on we ventured on you know it's just a continuing thing I mean uh, let's face it look after 50 years, when you're the only remaining member that's kept it going through all these other changes, you know, what some of the albums list, like 30 people coming in and out of the band through the years. Uh, now you can look up statistics, you know, online, how many members were in the band. And the longer the band's together, of course you're going to have a lot of changes. But I, I'm really against these bands that strive on with nobody from the original group in the band. And they keep using the name and using the name. It's just beating a dead horse, and it's a sin to me. Yes. Uh, I, I really hope that uh, when my time comes that I've got to hang it up or I dropped it on stage, which might very well be the case because I'll never stop. <laughs> I'm totally, you know, as long as I'm alive and breathing, will keep on going. Pentagram will keep on going. 
But I'm hoping that, you know, when I stop, that maybe the gloves will get hung up for good and it'll be just a legacy, you know? I would imagine. <laughs> well, it's a bit what... like, I mean, you know, I always go back to Motorhead, don't I? And I think, you know, no, the other two members didn't think, oh, you know, we can keep this going with another person. It was like, no, that's that's the, we can draw a line under that. That's nice. Unlike a band like Chicago, this American band, who I think they just kind of doesn't, it doesn't matter who's in it. They just go and tour, don't they? I think from from what I've seen and watched on documentaries with that particular. Yeah, band. I mean, there are, well, there are a couple members that, that kept in Chicago through the whole thing. So it's it's still got its validity. It's still got its authenticness, you know, at least. There's someone who was there from the get-go, they kept on carrying the flag to Iwo Jima, right? <laughs> you know? Yes, absolutely. Um, did you, you know, just going back to that American, I'm um, not American, the, the kind of German and the European tour, do you find, though, because of kind of the interest in sort of, you know, I suppose a certain amount of, you know, rock and golf and, and sort of theatricality, do you find that you've, you're picking up new member audiences all the time and you're not just playing to sort of like lot of old men who are just you know vaguely standing up yeah yeah we're we're now going into a third generation of people let's face it you know 50 years on i'm in my 60s when i started playing you know people were, were the age i was and it's really kind of fun that we're getting a very young audience now last year when we were out on the road i would say the overall audiences, we just did U.S. last year, but uh, the audiences were ranging probably 18 to 35 on the average. And that's two generations down, really. I mean, you've got 60s and then 40s and then 20s. And, uh, you know, we're starting to pick up new people all over the world. Um, I, it really makes me feel good that the the legacy who can live on you know people's dads are 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 coming to see us and bringing their kids now right yes and it, it makes you feel really good inside it's like wow i turned on another generation yet <laughs> you know, i'm still here and so I, i'm gonna keep doing it man you know yeah i mean it's it's kind of interesting because because, you know, there's been, obviously, you know, you've had the film which was kind of made, which was, I mean, how did you feel about that when you, when you sort of saw the final edit? Oh, the film? I, I love the film. It uh, makes me cry when I watch it. I mean, I see this guy on the edge of death, myself, and uh, came back once again another time. And, uh, you know, the film was very bolstering in, in the band's, legacy of course you know i mean it's uh sad that i went through the things i went through and it's a drag but you know scars on my arms and legs showing i'm still here and uh, it was you know it it helped to boost the band the 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 film uh got really it, it really rose us to another level yet you know a prominence People seeing it all over the world and stuff like that, you know. Yes. So I'm I'm happy. I'm happy for the film coming out. I didn't want them to hide. I insisted when they started filming the movie, which was done over a course of six years of filming, and you know, just kept uh, they kept running out of money, running out of money, and 
I insisted that the one thing they do is not hide anything. That's why the film has some graphic, you know, uh, R-rated parts in it and so forth, I guess. Uh, and I didn't want them to hide anything. It was like, this is what I am. Yes, absolutely. You know? So, uh, you know, you take it or leave it, right? Absolutely. And thank I mean, goodness people, people have, ta- have taken it. Yes. I mean, uh, the genres have changed, though. The music business has so changed. Like, they called me online. They have the Bobby Liebling, Father of Doom. I, I can't stand doom metal. I have to make a point of that once again, and I do this in all interviews. I don't like doom metal because 90% of it is pretentious. It has no changes in dynamics. I'm a singer. Come on. You can't understand any of the vocals or the people are just growling and sounds like toilets flushing. And, you know, I don't like being labeled. I just play heavy hard rock, man. You know? So sorry for the people out there who think doom on, doom on. But this is, this is just a, another label that's been put on things. I can't stand all the subgenre stuff, yes. all the categories and the tags put on things. When we all started playing, it was just rock music, man. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it came to rock and roll. I just took out some of the roll, that's all. <laughs> Because speaking to you, you you know, because I I had no idea. I did, but you seem very coherent, considering you know, like looking and and reading oh, various, yeah. various stuff. Not many people have such a sort of rocky period and and sort of have so many kind of I don't know, drug related kind of uh, kind of moments, and still sort of seem so kind of with it, you know, without some sort of strange delay system in their brain. So <laughs> you, you may. <laughs> You know what I mean, but um, you know, there's there's no delay. There, yes, of course I do. Yes, yes. I still got my semblance of mind. I thank God for that every day. Yes, you know, I still can can think coherently and speak lucidly and so forth and so on. I like to try to keep up on my game. I mean, if I'm that fried that I'm just going to sit and do the uh, this the Nigel of Spinal Tap moments oh, yes. <laughs> in quotes in quotes. I'm not going to do it then. I don't want to, you know, I mean, maybe I, I've done wrong things through the years, uh, uh, the drugging, uh, you know, the jail stints and so forth, so on. Big deal. I still kept my semblance of mind. I'm not going to do it if I'm fried. You know, <laughs> you I mean, can't do it. No, absolutely. I mean, did you, do you, does any of that kind of frighten you, you know, when you're sort of there and you're thinking, Christ, I've got to go to jail now. It's... I mean, that is quite, you know, does that feel like, I mean, that's quite horrendous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's no fun at all, believe me, trust me. But, you know, you, you, you have something embedded in you from childhood. This is what I do, man. You know, this is what my calling in life is. Life's too short to try to offshoot in 50 different directions because you end up in the middle of nowhere. So I have this unilateral thinking, <laughs> you know, I have a one track mind when it comes to rock and, and listening to rock music and playing rock music. And I'm just going to keep doing that because this is the only thing that I've really been good at. I have, I've done everything from pick up cigarette butts in parking lots 
to cleaning toilets, to running car washes, to phone soliciting, and none of those made me feel any more whole inside, and music does. Yes. Well, that's that's it. I mean, I mean, it's a bit of a you know. I always you know, my, one of my last questions is always is always it's a bit of a tricky one with you, really, because I often say, "What would you, what?" No, it might not be. In fact, what would you say to an eighteen-year-old? You know, if you could have said something to your eighteen-year-old self starting out, right, and with all the decades and all the wisdom. I mean, you know, if you could just have whispered a couple of things, you know, in that person's ear as they went out on stage or they were in the studio, just saying, "Hey, you know." You might want to ignore me because I'm an old man now, but kid, listen to this. What would, yeah, what would you it know be? what? I I hate to sound like the old fart in the situation, but I'd say, hey kid, don't quit your day job, <laughs> <laughs> like they always tell you, because this rock and roll road is so rocky and rolly that it has no end product necessarily in sight. So whatever you do, keep the focus, try to get it when you're the age I was when I started the band. Because man, if you don't have any focus, life stays blurry. And for me, it's been a clear cut path in that one respect that Pentagram will keep on going if i drop on the stage then i died at home yes well then yes like like all the best entertainers really isn't it you it's best to go out in front of a crowd yeah you're going to come to the end eventually right we're all going to get there yes and i mean you you know because obviously you know your last couple of years have had some ups and downs i mean have you got plans of a new and any new material and and tucked back in the in the into the studio Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, one thing that I am very, very proud of, if I can mention it for just a few moments, is I finished an album in February, right before the pandemic hit the world, and I finished a brand new album in Portugal, and uh, we went over there and recorded it. I did it with the punk legend Sonny Vincent from the Testers and Jimmy Recca from the Stooges and Hugo Conum and Juan Ventura from Dawn Rider. They're a Portuguese heavy hard rock band. And we finished a brand new album, a side project, the first time I've ever really gotten to do my own involved, heavy involved side project. And the band is called The Limit. And we just finished a brand new album. We're currently just shopping labels. It just got finished, as a matter of fact, by remote mixing about a week ago. And I'm getting to do something because it has a punk and heavy hard rock fusion type of sound. Kind of early Stooges MC5 type of a thing. Uh, Sonny's become a great dear friend of mine and all the guys in the band have... We don't plan to play live, not now. Uh, Pentagram will definitely keep going. That's my mainstay. But I'm really proud of this album. Uh, it's called Caveman Logic. And that kind of lends to uh, where I am in, the, uh, in my outlook on things. You know, uh, 
And did that... But did, we just finished... And I was going to say, did that project feel like a bit of a breath of fresh air than the fact that there was no kind of baggage of, you know, other members? Yes, it did, because I got to be a brat and let the Iggy side of me out on record. And the album's got 12 songs. Uh, we have some incredible lead guitar playing. It's, it's a, a fusion of things that I've always viewed as my two approaches in the fact that I love the traditional punk scene, Ramones, Drones, uh, Dead Boys, Saints, Vibrators type of thing. And it's got that approach because Sonny brought that element and Jimmy to the band. And it's also got my approach of the heaviness. And I got to, to make an album that has a, with a, if I may say, just curse for a minute, it's, it's got the real punk fuck you attitude, but it's got lead playing like Michael Schenker Excellent. <laughs> blended into it which is a very strange, unusual blend that people I don't think have really used at all. And it, it is a breath of fresh air. I'm very proud of this album. Fantastic. And, uh, yes. Did it feel like... A so, and I've, al I've, al I've also written about a, a half of a new pentagram album, which is just on the side right now, because we're on hold, of course, because of the corona. But uh, that will... That will come in time if I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if and if you got the latest lineup, is that quite a that's with Matt and Greg? Is that kind of pretty solid at the moment, the three of you? Yes, it is. Uh, for the moment, I mean, as solid as it can be in these times. I yeah, mean, we absolutely. don't we haven't seen each other for months. You know, we haven't played or rehearsed or any of that kind of stuff. But having new material for Pentagram which is, like I said, it's like I have at least six brand new songs uh, that have never, ever been heard. You know, the Pentagram albums for the years, I've redone a lot of the old stuff, you know, much later in proper recording quality and so forth. But these are all brand new things, and I think that they'll really elate the Pentagram fans. Yes. So I'm really happy about that, too. You know? Did it feel... Because... When, we get going, when we get going, we'll be tight. We will. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, with your side project, because it was kind of um, various musicians who had got quite an amazing CV, did you all feel like, be, but at the same time, was sort of working with people you'd never worked before, worth, worked with before? Did it yep. feel like you were really able to go at 100 miles an hour with each other, you know, to really push it? Because there was like, because you're not young kids, you, you've been around the block a lot. Did you, you know, was it kind of like, there's no bullshit. You were able to really rock that out. Well, it, it had a lot of bumpy roads along the way in planning and stuff. Look, uh, Sonny is a, is a leader all the way in the genre and the music he's done, you know, the dozens of albums he's had out. And, of course, I'm a veteran having done the hard, heavy rock scene with Pentagram. So we had bumpiness but we knew we were very professional at it. And regardless of the fact of whether he or I or Jimmy or any of the members have made the major over the top big leagues or not, we still knew we had professionalism and we were seasoned musicians. 
and we knew what the hell we were doing and what we wanted to do. So, I mean, we had probably about, uh, oof, almost a year in pre-planning to do this. And then when we flew over to Portugal and met with the two Dawn Rider guys, uh, Hugo and, and Juan, we were focused on having a pre-laid out plan. And even though, you know, we had bumps in the road, like I say, uh, because you, it's hard when you got two figurehead people being Sonny and myself, you know, heading up different types of things and, and having to assume the leader role in the band for, you know, the greater part of the history. Uh, sometimes it gets a little, you know, a little bit of friction here and there. But now that we finished the thing, we have birthed a beautiful child. <laughs> I'm yes. really, really happy. I'm elated as hell about it. I love the album. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't run a long time. It's uh, about 40 minutes, but it's 12 songs that are really, really killer songs. And uh, I can't wait for the world to hear it. Yes, we, we knew our professional, you know, our professional pedigrees per se. So. Well, I was just kind of thinking, you know, thinking some of the sort of the best artists who often worked with, you know, like it, I suppose you'd like the Stones or the Beatles and, and you know, a few other bands I can think of, you know, during the 80s, especially where they were really good, you know, where there was two people, but you realise there was a lot of friction between them. And, and so the material that us, the listener hears, is brilliant. But when they went to do their solo albums, you went, mm, probably not quite so good. So it kind of sometimes you need each other and... I just wondered if that was kind of a little bit like that with that particular project that, you know, there was, there wasn't, an, a, no one was going to say yes to a yeah. bad idea. Yeah, it was. Uh, and we, we finally, we really opened our, our minds to each other. I mean, I have great respect for Jimmy having been in the Stooges, you know, an institution, of course, and, uh, and Sonny, you know, with the testers and all the many other projects he's done. Uh, you know, he's played with everyone from Rats Gabies to Glenn Matlock to Wayne Kramer to Cheetah Chrome. You know, everybody's been in, in Sonny's bands. So he knew what the hell he was doing, and I knew what the hell I was doing. And, you know, it it really blended really in a wonderful way at the end. I was shocked the way it came out so smoothly. And we recorded the album in just a matter of I'd say four eight-hour sessions <laughs> from Amazing. beginning to end, from beginning to end. And it came out with 12 beautiful children, you know, great, great little kids, you know, which are our product. And it's the first time, actually, we went with the diplomacy and all songs are written by The Limit, which I was not a fan of doing initially and Sonny wanted it to be a real fair shake for everyone everyone did put a lot of effort into it and so it's the first time it won't have probably won't have separate writer credits on the songs uh and it can get sticky if you plan on longevity of a thing but this is just a project it's a one-off type of thing for now and you know, we both, we wanted to give everyone credit. Yes. Where it's due. Yeah, everyone contributed. 
Well, that's, that's fantastic. Well, look, well, this has been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me your time. And, you know, it's been an amazing journey. And um, I'm just sort of pleased that, you know, even though the decade has been a bit tricky, you've put, you, can, you can put the previous decades behind you and move on. You've got projects. And that's the main thing, isn't it? Things to look forward to. Definitely things to look forward to. Definitely a lot more pentagram. Like I say, if I'm breathing and I'm living and, and I can stand upright and get up there and shake my ass a little bit for people and, and bark some words out that are, that are worthy, then we will keep doing it yes. on and on. Oh, just, I mean, this is just, you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone asks you this question, but just your memories of doing Forever My Queen, because that is kind of the, I know everyone must ask you this. Can you remember recording that um, particular track? Uh, yeah, I can. As a matter of fact, uh, it's just March 22nd, 1973, the original demo version that became the one on First Days Here. <laughs> and uh, I remember it very well. We were nervous kids. Recording to, uh, techniques were real different back then. You didn't have uh, one thing I'm, I'm not a fan of is, is I like going into a big recording studio versus doing it at your home. I realized the advantages, of course, of home recording and mobile recording and so forth. But I remember being in that studio and feeling like I finally made it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. I mean, because it still sounds great today, doesn't it? You've got to admit, the crowd well, must love it. I hope so. That's, I hope so. That's in you guys' eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you must feel fantastic. Fantastic. Look, thank look, you. I'll let you get on. But again, thank you ever so much for your time. And uh Stay safe and look, come back to England and rock. We need you. I sure hope so. Thank you so much for having me, okay? Yeah, take care there. See you later. All right, you take care. Cheers. Right, bye see bye. you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that is the end of the interview um, with the frontman of Pentagram and much more. Indeed, that is Bobby Lieblin. Thank you ever so much for listening, if you still are. Well done. Uh, you can contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just to at C86show, and uh, all these shows have been archived. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean, just do C86show. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>